ahead and for those that will be baptizing at the end of this month, Lord willing. Turn to Luke chapter 19, if you would. Luke chapter 19. Um, if you walk through these doors, not now, but at some point, if you walk through these doors, you'll see in the hallway a big banner hanging there. And I think it's been there long enough that you probably walk by it and don't notice it anymore. But it's there, and on that banner is kind of an exposition of Acts chapter 2, our vision as a church, our hope as a church, our goal as a church. And on that banner, you'll see seven characteristics that we've pulled from Acts chapter 2 as we get a description of that early church. You'll see on that banner that the early church sought to mature in the Scriptures. We want to do that as, as well. You'll see that they were making supplication. They were praying regularly. You, you see that they were, they were having meaningful fellowship together. There were miracles that were happening among them. They, they were ministering to the body. They were magnifying God together. They were characterized by missions, evangelism, disciple-making. And you see those seven characteristics, those seven qualities out on that banner. And you'll notice that in the middle, there's what we call the bullseye. There's the, there's the target. There's what we aim at. And it's the Great Commission. It's that missions element, that evangelism element, that discipling element. And we've talked about in the past, if you've been here any amount of time, that if we aim at the bullseye, if we aim at the one thing Jesus left us here to do, the other six characteristics and qualities will take care of themselves. You will never dig into the Scriptures like you'll dig into the Scriptures when you're discipling somebody towards Christ, when you're walking someone towards Christ. You're not going to pray as fervently as you pray when you're engaged in the mission and in the Great Commission. You won't experience fellowship in any way like you experience the fellowship when you link arms and, and charge forward to advance the kingdom of God through evangelism, missions, and discipling. You know each other's needs, so you're able to minister. It's the greatest way that we glorify God is by bringing people into the kingdom. And it's where we see miracles happen on the front lines of the kingdom and this battle for the kingdom, doing what Christ has left us here to do. But it's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's so easy to get sidetracked. We find ourselves getting over-enamored with politics. The pursuit of prosperity, possessions, earthly pleasures, power. We, some of us even get wrapped up in church stuff. Good spiritual things. It's so easy to get distracted in a world of pressures, in a world of expectations, in a world of television, in a world of internet, in a world of radio, in a world of cell phones. It's easy to get distracted from the main thing. And in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable beginning in verse 11, and he gives us a warning here against being distracted and being sidetracked from what is really important, that one thing. He's left us here to do. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. 
says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Verse 18, the second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, you reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, he said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and repaying what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Let's... Father, as we continue to walk through this Gospel of Luke and we come to this passage today, I ask you to help me to speak clearly, help me to speak the words that you would have me to speak. God, help us to hear your still small voice and to respond as you would lead us to respond as individuals, as families, as a church. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this parable in Luke chapter 19, we're reminded of the clarity of our Lord's commission to us and some motivations for obeying that commission and keeping our eyes focused on that commission and not getting sidetracked. Look back in verse number 11, it says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus has just encountered Zacchaeus. He's, he's called him down. He's went to his house. Zacchaeus has had a radical transformation and he, they're carrying on. the the conversation, and while they're listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Why did He tell this parable? Why did He choose to tell this parable at this point, at this time in Luke's gospel? Well, He tells us why. He says He went on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem. He's making His way close to Jerusalem, and we know looking back in hindsight that he's making his way to Jerusalem in order to be arrested, in order to be betrayed, in order to suffer, in order to be crucified, in order to be buried, in order to be resurrected. 
But they didn't know that yet. They're looking forward still with their presuppositions, with their, with their understandings of what the kingdom looked like. They're looking forward. So, so they don't see as clearly as we see looking back. And Jesus says, it's time for a parable because I'm getting close to Jerusalem and these disciples of mine, these followers of, of mine, are supposing that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. You see, they all had the mindset that when Messiah came... He was going to come in. He was going to conquer Rome. He was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to set his throne up in the temple. He was going to reign from Jerusalem. He was going to reign from Israel. We're going to see this unfold as we continue through Luke's gospel. They think the kingdom is going to come in power and to come immediately. But Jesus knew different. So he said, it's time for me to tell them a parable and sow some seeds to get them thinking about what my kingdom really is looks like. So he tells them this parable because of their triumphant Messiah hope. Verse 12, he says, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. They were, they were familiar with what Jesus was referring to here because under the Roman Empire, there would be local men who may go and appeal to Rome for some level of leadership. Even in the kingdom of Israel, like other kingdoms, they would, they would have sub-kings given the right and the authority to rule under Rome. They had one by the name of Herod, remember? This nobleman is going to his authority to get the right to rule his kingdom. And as he leaves, he gives his slaves a commission. Verse 13, he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. That's pretty simple, isn't it? There's no room for confusion. It's very, very clear. He calls ten of his slaves. He has ten minas in his hands, which, which is about three months, a hundred days worth of uh, common days labor. And he gives each one of these slaves one mina, and he says, do business with this until I Return. Engage in business. There's no doubt what the nobleman expected. Invest what I've given you. Use it wisely. Make a profit. The commission is absolutely clear. And I want us to see the parallels here between the nobleman and between Jesus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem not to set up his throne in the temple, not to set up his throne from Israel and to rule with a rod of iron. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to lay down his life, to be buried in a barred tomb, to be resurrected on Sunday morning, to be ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father until all things are placed under his feet and he is given his kingdom. So he, like the nobleman, has gone back to his authority, the Father, to await his kingdom. But before he ascended, before he ascended into heaven, to the right hand of the Father, to await the, the consummation of his kingdom, he gave his servants, his slaves, his disciples a very clear command, a very clear commission. And I know you've heard this over and over. If you've been here more than five times, you've heard this. But you're going to hear it again right now. In Matthew chapter 28, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus came and said to them in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And we've talked about what that commission really means. We're not going to go into that now because we've gone into it and we just don't have time. Go back and listen to another sermon about what the Great Commission really means and what he's calling us to do. In Mark chapter 16, you read to the end of the Gospel of Mark, in verse 15, he says, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. In Luke chapter 24, you read to the end of the Gospel of Luke. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're going to try to get there by the end of the summer. Verse 47, Jesus says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in case you have a bad habit of not finishing books you start, like Matthew, like Mark, like Luke, like John, he puts it at the very beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 through verse 8. It says, When they had come together, they asked him. Notice what they asked him. Look at what they asked him. These are slow learners, just like us. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Are you now going to crack the whip on the Romans? Are you now going to overthrow the Roman government? Are you now going to set your, your throne up in the temple? Are you now going to reign and rule from Jerusalem? Is it now? They're, they still have this triumphant Messiah hope in their mind. And he said to them in verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now listen, some of you end times buffs, you need to hear that. You think you got the end times all figured out and exactly how it's going to play out. You've watched every Kirk Cameron Left Behind movie. And you're watching the news and the signs. Listen, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But... Here's our business. Here's our business. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's our business. Can it be any clearer? I've, had actually, I've actually had people criticize my ministry because all we talk about is missions, which is a lie. But we do talk a lot about it. And let me just give you one little clue. Let me just give you one little statement. If missions isn't our business, we are not a church. We can have the greatest fellowships, parties. We can go on a cruise with David Jeremiah. And if we're not about missions, we are not a church. Jesus has left us here for this purpose. And He gave it loudly. And He gave it clearly. And it is, it is amazing how easily we push it off. It's amazing how easily we get distracted and we get sidetracked from the one thing He left us here to do. He knew we were simple-minded. He knew we were slow learners. So He just gave us one thing. Do this. Hope I don't lose you here. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I don't give illustrations because I'm not good at them. I just like to give you the Bible. But let me just try to help you understand what I think we have going on, especially in the West. Okay? Imagine, just imagine with me that a war is raging. A real battlefield war is raging. 
And you see the front line of the biggest battle in the biggest war in history. I'll just think of the beaches of Normandy, June 6, D-Day, right? The front lines of the biggest battle that's raging in history. You also see around Normandy Beach, so to speak. This is all pretend. This isn't a real history lesson, but just pretend with me. You see around the front lines of the battlefield that there are some smaller battles around the perimeter. They're not in the eye of the storm, but they seem like worthy battles. They seem like important battles. Now, if you're uncomfortable on the front lines, if you're uncomfortable in the eye of the storm, if you're, uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable on the Normandy beach of the battle, maybe fearful, maybe even a coward, what will you do? What can you do to, go, to, com, to, to avoid completely going AWOL? What can you do to feel justified and satisfied that you're not retreating from the war while at the same time avoiding the biggest battlefront in the world? You can go fight along the perimeter. That can be your battle. That can be your thing. And at least you're in the fight, right? Let's apply that to spiritual life. Because I'm convinced this is why we are so easily sidetracked from the Great Commission. If the Great Commission is the bullseye, we could call that Normandy Beach of spiritual life. We could call that the the eye of the storm, the front lines of the main battle. Evangelism, disciple making, missions. The problem is there's all kinds of other battles going on around us. Good battles. Good battles that maybe even center on things God cares about. Government. The government is repeatedly and increasingly challenging Christ's rule and Christ's reign. There's no question about that. And some people think it's their job to save the government. To save America. From the tyranny of the communists and the socialists and terrorists and whatever other is we have that we're dealing with in our day. But here's the reality. Here's reality. We can save America. And if everybody's lost and goes to hell, what good have we done? We can preserve our freedom. And if everybody busts hell wide open, what have we done? We've put a moral face on America. And we all feel better. So we don't have to be confronted with the nasty. We put a moral face on America and everybody goes to hell. What have we done? Made life more comfortable. Gender confusion is another battle. Gender confusion is not just confusion. It is a tactical assault on God's design. Please don't miss that. This isn't like, oh, just unfortunate This is a tactical assault by the enemy on God's design. We can fight to clarify gender roles, which is important. But everybody can die knowing they're a man or knowing they're a woman and go to hell. And what have we accomplished? Homosexuality. 
Again, a tactical assault on marriage instituted by God. It's not just something unfortunate in our day. It is a tactical assault on marriage. And we can fight to preserve the sanctity of marriage. And we can all die married after 60 years of marriage straight and go to hell. Adultery. Adultery. Fatherlessness. Divorce. All those things are an assault on the family. A tactical assault on the family. We can never divorce. We can do away with adultery. We can have fathers in every home and still go to hell. Abortion. Abortion, which is a tactical assault on an entire generation made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made and knitted together in their mother's womb. And we can abolish abortion, which I pray that we do. We can abolish abortion and everybody give birth to their children, everybody die and go to hell. Do you see the point here? I mean, we even fight over whether you should wear masks or not wear masks, and whether or not you should get vaccinations. We can fight over anything. I could go on and on and on and on with the number of battles raging out there on the battlefield, most of them good, many of them things God cares deeply about, but they're not the main battle. The main battle is evangelism, discipling, missions, advancing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, if I see the the eye of the storm, if I see the front lines of the battle, evangelism, disciple-making, missions, advancing the gospel, and I'm uncomfortable there, that's not my thing. What can I do to soothe my conscience? I can make my banner fighting for my view Whatever it is of government. And I'll blog about it, and I'll share about it, and I'll like about it, and I'll post about it, and I'll talk about it, and I'll drive everybody around me crazy about it. Because this is my thing. This is my interest. Maybe my battle is fighting for for gender clarity. For the sanctity of marriage. For the health of the family. Maybe my thing is fighting against abortion. Perimeter battles that we can justify ourselves in. We can avoid going AWOL. We can consume our time in perimeter battles. This is my thing. This is how we get sidetracked. Are you following me? Now let me clarify something for you because I don't want to lose you. I know we've spent a lot of time on the introduction. I only have 10 points to the sermon, so... We won't be here past one. <clears throat> Let me clarify something. I'm going to give you an example. Let me use abortion ministry as an example. Abortion ministry can be fought as a perimeter battle. And here's how it's done. Abortion is fought as a perimeter battle rather than in the heat of the battle, the front lines of the battle, when all we want to do is talk about legislation. How can we get our bill passed? I'm not saying these things aren't important and valuable. Don't hear me say that. But when all we want to talk about is legislation, politics, how are we going to have the politicians save us from abortion, or even going to the abortion clinic and laying down in front of the driveway to keep anybody from driving in and killing their baby. That's a perimeter battle. 
a front line battle at the abortion clinic. You heard about it at Chaco Springs if you were there. Front line battle at the abortion clinic is going out there and seeing the women that walk into that place as in need of a Savior and in need of repentance and in need of a relationship with God. So you share the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. You plead with them to let you pray with them and point them to Christ and show them where their hope is found. And you know what happens when one of those women stops and she hears the gospel and repentance is brought in her life and she has faith in Christ and she's made a new creation? She goes right on in there. No, she doesn't go right on in there. You know she doesn't. She turns around. She goes home. She has her child and she walks with Christ. Abortion is now front-line battle. If we fight the battle that Jesus left us to fight, the perimeter battles will be affected. Government will be affected. Gender identity will be affected. Marriage will be affected. Families will be affected. Abortion will be affected. But if our efforts are focused on a perimeter battle instead of helping advance the front line in the real war, we may end up doing more damage than we're doing good. Now, here's what some of you are thinking. I'm in your head right now. Well, you know, it's not that I'm fearful. It's not that I don't value evangelism, discipling, and missions. This just isn't my gifting. This isn't where I'm gifted. And God gives us all different gifts. Well, let me just say, you are getting two parables confused. There's two parables that are very much alike. One is the parable of the minus, which you're probably not as familiar with that we read about this morning. The other one is the parable of the... Does anybody want to make a guess? Talents. You heard that one? Here is the difference. In the parable of the minus, everybody gets the same thing. Here's yours. Here's yours, here's yours, here's yours, make a profit. In the parable of the talents, some get five, some get three, some get one. There's differing talents. There's differing gifts. There's one commission. There's differing gifts, differing talents. Yes, you may not be gifted at evangelism. You may be gifted at something else. But there's one commission. It doesn't matter about your gifts. It doesn't matter about your talents. These men, these slaves, were commissioned to use their mina with all of their talents, with all of their abilities, with all of their gifts, to turn a profit for the Lord. Do you see that? So we can't play the I'm not gifted, I don't have the skills, I don't have the gifting, I don't have the abilities, or even my personal convictions and burdens. We all have the same commission, and we are commissioned to use all of our talents, abilities, and gifts to turn a profit for our Lord and the kingdom. Let's be found faithful, because we've been promised and we have been warned that He is coming. The nobleman, after he gave his commission, went away with the promise that he would return. He said, do business until I come back. And Jesus did the exact same thing in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After he gave the great commission, after they said, Are you going to restore the kingdom to, the, to, to us now, Lord? He says, That's not for you to worry about. This is for you to worry about. Advance the kingdom from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts 1, 9 through 11, it says, When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, I'm sure their mouths were wide open. They were gawking. They're like, What? Where did he go? 
Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you staring into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, you better get busy. He's going to come again. You heard what he just told you. You heard what he just said. Why are you standing around? Get busy. There's coming a day when the commission will come to an end. Think about that. There's coming a day when the commission will come to an end and we will not have another opportunity to share the gospel, speak the gospel, spread the gospel, disciple anyone, or go into any unreached, unengaged, uncharted territory with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when the commission will come to an end. So how can we stay on the front lines and avoid distraction when the media is constantly pummeling us with distractions? When our culture is constantly pummeling us with distractions? We need to remember four things, and I'll be quick. Number one, there'll be a return. Look in verses 14 and 15. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, when he returned, like he said he would, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The nobleman returned. He said he would, and he did. There was opposition. They didn't want him to rule over them. But it did not stop his return or the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus has people who do not want him to rule and to reign over them. But it's not going to stop his return. It's not going to stop the reality that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's not going to stop the fact that every knee is going to bow. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. When he returned, those slaves were were brought to him and he said give me an account for what you've done with what I left you here to do 2 Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil he's coming again and we will all be summoned into his presence to give an account for what we've done with what he left us here to do. Number two, there'll be a reward, verses 16 to 19. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mana has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mana, Master, has made five minus. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. You will be rewarded. You will be rewarded for how you use your gifts and your talents to advance the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 to 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We can't come up with anything better than the foundation, who is Jesus Christ in his message. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Kent Hughes said that the picture the Bible gives of this judgment is one of individual believers presenting their lives' works to Christ in the form of buildings. The eternal foundation of each building is Christ, but the structures vary. Some are made totally of wood, hay, and straw. Others are gold, silver, and precious stones. Still others are composite structures of all the elements in individual proportions. 
As the architecture of each life is presented, it is publicly subjected to the revealing torch of Christ's judgment. And with the flames comes the moment of truth. I may prance around up here in cufflinks, shiny shoes, preach an eloquent sermon, and see thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But if I'm a big, fat hypocrite with impure motives on the day of judgment, everything, every reward will be burned away. Paul goes on in verses 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 3 and says, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Your thing, your battle is going to be subjected to the fire of the judgment of Jesus Christ. When that fire blazes what you're spending your life to do, what's going to be left? Gold or hay? What's going to be exposed? Silver or wood? Precious stones or straw? When the fire burns away the dross of our lives, what will we have left? Your fancy house, your fancy cars, your fancy clothes, your Netflix binge, your social media account, your career, everything will go up in smoke. The only thing that will matter will be what you've done with Jesus Christ and have you obeyed His great commission. That's really all that's left. There'll be a return. There'll be rewards. And thirdly, there will be rejection. Verses 20 to 25. Verse 20 says, Another came. Now you don't see this in your English translation, but that another is a Greek word that means a different kind of person. This is a different kind of slave. We had one kind of slave. Now we got a different kind of slave. And he said, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You make up what you did not lay down. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So I just hid my mind. I hid. I wrapped it up. I had a small group study. We talked about the minor. I read a book about the minor. I thought about strategies to use the minor. I mean, I even calculated, did some t- statistics, formed a committee. Put together a vision for our committee and our small group. We just kind of wrapped it up in a handkerchief. He was completely justified in his mind because he said, he said I, you know, I'll probably blow it anyway, probably lose it anyway. And you know, how many of us are like that when we think about evangelism, discipling, and missions? We're like, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm probably just going to mess it up anyhow. Probably so. But thank God he's sovereign and he can take our mess ups and he can still save people, right? He can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. So yeah, you'll mess it up. You'll say the wrong thing. We're not, we're not commanded to say the right thing at the right time and the right way. We're commanded to go and to get busy and trust the Lord with the results. Verse 22, but he said, he said to him, by your own words, I'll judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? You just said it, not me. You said it, not me. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Wait, wait, he's got ten already. That's not fair. 
He was rejected. He was condemned by his own words. We know if we're Christians and you've been in this church, you know what the one thing Jesus has left us here to do is. And by our words, we will be justified. By our words, we will be condemned. What do you talk about the most? What do you post about the most? And let's just think if Jesus were to return, we all stood before him and he pulled up everybody's social media account and he just started reading through the posts. What do you read about the most? What do you study about the most? Matthew 12, 36 to 37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's scary. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Number four, and lastly, there'll be retribution. Verses 26 and 27, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. From the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. In other words, it's better to do something imperfectly and be doing something. Because God can steer that moving ship a lot better than he can one anchored at the dock. And if you start moving with him and he's using you in little ways, you will see those ways increase and you will bear fruit and then more fruit and he'll prune you so that you can gain and produce much fruit. If you sit at the dock... You're going to get more fruitless and more fruitless and more fruitless. But in verse 27, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Well, that's merciful, isn't it? Mercy is gone at this point. It's over. You don't want me to reign over you and rule over you? Out of the kingdom you go. Those in verse 14 who did not want the noblemen to rule over them were slaughtered. Why? Because they did not want him to be their lord. And my question is, how many of us do not want Jesus Christ ruling over us? We want you to rule over our Sunday mornings, but don't mess with my life. Don't mess with my time. Don't mess with my career. Don't mess with my money. Don't mess with where I fight my battles and what I'm passionate about and what I want to do and what I want to give my life to. Don't mess with that. Do we want Jesus to rule over us? What do our lives say? What do our prayers say? What do our pocketbooks say? What do our passions say when the one who rules over us gives us a commission? Are these things saying obedience? Or are they saying distraction, sidetrack? Christ can be your ruler or he can be your enemy, but he will not be both. He can be your ruler or he can be your enemy. I read this week in Psalm 25, or maybe it's last week, and it just kind of hit me. Psalm 25 and verse 1, this is from the New Living Translation, because I, I, I read a different translation every year, just to get different you know, perspectives, kind of see things in a new light. And it says this, Oh, Lord, I give my life to you. And I stopped right there, and I thought about that. Really? Some of us will give him our soul. God, we want you to get us to heaven. Here's my eternal soul, but my life's mine. To do with as I see fit. I thought, really, do I give my life to him? Because if I give my life to him, that means I give my health to him. That means I give my future to him. I give my ministry to him. I give my kids to him. I give my bank account to him. I give my stuff to him. I give everything to him. I give my life to you. That's what the nobleman is looking for from his subjects. It's someone to say, I give my life to you. Here I am. 
Send me, Lord. Use me, Lord. Do with me and my everything what you want to do with me and my everything. What's the one thing that would keep me from saying, Oh, Lord, I give my life to you. And I thought in my mind, it has to be, I don't really believe he's good and trust him to do with me what is good. And then I read the rest of the verse. What does the psalmist say? I give my life to you. I trust in you, God. If you, if you do not want to be a subject... In every area of your life, it gives evidence that you do not trust Him. You don't really believe He's good. You don't really believe He will work all things together for your good. So we want to hang on to something. We want to cling to something. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge of our health. So we read every medical blog there is and we eat gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, food-free stuff to try to prolong our lives. We want to be in control of our marriages so we, we don't trust our spouse. We hover. We want to be in control of our family so we try to jam the gospel down our kids' throats or we try to jam baseball down their throats or we try to jam whatever it is we like down their throats. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And when we want to be in control, it shows that we can't release our grip. We can't release our grip. And the only reason we would not release our grip to a holy, ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God is because we don't believe He is love and that He's good. There will be retribution for those who do not trust Him and subject themselves to Him. So here's the question this morning. In conclusion, this is the real conclusion, not the Baptist conclusion, but the Baptist preacher conclusion, but the real conclusion. Do you want Christ to rule over you? Do you want to give your life to Christ? If you say yes, then what that means is He now is going to take your life and He is going to inject you and and insert you into the front lines of the battle fulfilling the Great Commission. And here's the liberating thing about Christianity. That doesn't mean you need to go quit your job. Well, I'm a mechanic. I mean, I guess I'm going to go be a missionary now. I'm an accountant. I guess I'll... I guess I'll quit and go to seminary and try to be a preacher, man. Because I'm supposed to... No. The mechanic works on cars and proclaims the gospel. The accountant crunches numbers and proclaims the gospel. I don't know how that works, but it can work. The teacher teaches and lives and breathes the gospel. The doctor doctors and he lives and breathes and communicates the gospel. The engineer engineers and he lives and breathes and communicates the gospel. And maybe God will pluck you from this engineering job to one in this country. Or this mechanic job to one in this country. Or this doctoring job to one in this country. Who knows what God will do, but we do what God has gifted us to do. And he's given us the ability to do. And we invest it in the kingdom, whether it's mechanicking, preaching, teaching, pastoring, engineering, accounting. Fill in the blank. We live and we breathe the gospel. 
and we seek to point people to Christ and disciple people towards Christ from here in our own neighborhood all the way to the ends of the earth as God would allow. Get busy. If you want Him to rule over you and reign over you, get busy doing what He has left you here to do. He's waiting and He's coming. He's coming again. The question is, are you ready? Some of you need Him to rule and to reign over you for the first time. You know, you know, that you may have come, you may have come to church as a child. You may have prayed the sinner's prayer at VBS. You may have gotten baptized. You may have even been on the church rolls, one of our many church rolls here. But you know deep down in your heart that you do not have a passion for God. You don't have a passion for His Word. You don't have a passion for His work. You haven't been made a new creation. You don't care about His commission. And you know that you don't have peace with God. Listen, this morning, by divine appointment, God has brought you in His sovereignty to this room at this time so that you can hear one more time that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven to come to this earth to live the sinless, spotless, perfect, righteous life that God requires of each one of us to die the death that your sin deserves and that my sin deserves to be buried in a barred tomb, to be resurrected on the third day, conquering death, hell, and the grave so that if you in this room right now would call upon His name and repent of your sins and put your faith and your trust in Him alone, you can be made right with God. You can be enlisted in His army and you can fight to advance the kingdom from here to the ends of the earth. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? If not, would you call on Him even now until He gives you assurance that you're His child? And if you know Him, let's get in the fight. Let's get on the front lines and proclaim the gospel message from here to the ends of the earth. Would you bow with me? Andy's going to make his way over to my left. Michael will come over and he'll be on my right. Brad will be up here somewhere in the midst. If you need to pray with someone or you want to talk with someone about where you stand with Christ, you need someone to point you to Jesus. Tom's going to begin to to play. And I want you to take a moment to ask the Lord how He would have you to respond. These men are here. They'll pray for you. They'll point you to Christ. They'll counsel you. They'll do whatever you need. If it's a prayer request, I'm sick. I just found out I've got cancer. I just found out A loved one passed away. I need prayer. That's what this time is for, for prayer. The altar's open. Now's your time to respond in the stillness of this moment as you reflect upon what you've heard. You respond as the Lord would lead you to respond. We want to pray for you. We want to point you to Jesus. The altar's open. Maybe you, right where you are, need to just call upon the name of the Lord. Submit yourself, your life to Him. Say, my life is yours. I trust you, Lord. My career is yours. I trust you, Lord. My marriage is yours. My children are yours. My family is yours. I trust you, Lord. 
submit yourself to his leadership submit yourself to his authority would you pray for those around you who may be struggling with that right now listen it's not easy it shouldn't be easy pray for that person on your left your right in front of you behind you that they would be willing and made willing to submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. And listen, would you pray with me that God would reignite in us a passion to advance His gospel from here to the ends of the earth. From those that we're around, that we encounter, and those that we don't even know that we can't even pronounce the names of their people group. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. I pray that you would help each person in this room submit themselves to your lordship, submit themselves to your authority, their king, their master. Pray that every area of our lives would be surrendered to you and we would trust you as a good, good father. God, that you would stir in us a passion for you and for your commission, your work. Help us to pray. Help us to give. Help us to send. Help us to go from here to the least reached peoples on planet Earth as we join our talents, our gifts, our abilities together to be obedient to your great commission. God, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.